Cool. All right. Um, very cool. Awesome. Well, let's dive into it. Uh, for anyone who has been living under a rock for the past four months, would you please introduce yourself and the project that is the film Megan to the audience? Yes, hello everyone. I'm Anthony Willis and I'm the composer of Megan. So this project has very quickly become a big box office hit. And when you were first, you know, working on the score, when it was first getting pitched to you, was that some kind of growth, something you anticipated? Absolutely not. I mean, I think we live in general in such, un, you know, in such uncertain times for the business, you know, you know, with the pandemic, like big theatrical releases have not been, um, they've just not, can you, can you hear any chainsawing right now? No. No? Okay, fantastic. Sorry, there's a bit of chainsawing going on. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it's just not something anybody can count on. And I think the norm has, has not been for lower budget movies to make a big uh, cinematic impact. Um, so it's, it's so exciting. It's, it's a huge surprise. And I think you have to really like uh, embrace and, and relish those moments of, of successes. Cause it's been, there's been a lot of hard moments and canceled projects and, you know, projects that get made, but that never then come out, you know, in the last, you know, with restructuring of companies. And so it's, it's really a moment to celebrate um, cinema and, you know, people loving movies and, and wanting to go and see it, you know, see movies with their friends and laugh together. So uh, I feel really fortunate. I had not, did not predict we'd get this kind of audience. And uh, it's, it's terrific. It's, no, it's so cool. Honestly, when I was first seeing the trailers, I didn't even know what to think because it's like, this looks really cool, but I also feel like this has been done so many times before and it's coming out at a really weird time of year. I was like, I thought it was going to come out on Halloween. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And they, you know, they, they, I think they moved the release up a week, you know, to kind of get in, hit, you know, hit the, hit the new year with a bang. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's so cool. I mean, a lot goes, a lot goes into that. There's a lot of luck. I mean, I've definitely worked on films that, you know, people think they make the best decisions about all this stuff. And, and ultimately the film doesn't perform well um, in the theaters. And, and it's, you know, it, it really is, it's, it's very fortunate when it does. Something that was really interesting to me when I was learning about your input on the project was this kind of overlap but that we see between soundtrack and score with like the original song, Tell Me Your Dreams. Like that had to be done like pretty well in advance, I imagine, since it was actually programmed into the doll on set for the actors to interact with and then you also did like the cover titanium just kind of like at a technical perspective what was that like workflow for you especially with you know so much having to technically be done in post-production when it comes to music oftentimes yeah that's right I mean we um I think I I th there was a song moment for where tell me your dreams was written into the script as a concept so almost as soon as I joined the project um you know i i had to write the tune for the song and then gerard amazing director um i think he wrote the lyrics in you know a couple of minutes and mm -hmm. lyrics and the name of the song as well tommy and dreams and and sent it back to me 
and then we you know we work you know we finessed a little bit more and I mean you know within a day uh they had to film it on set with the animatronic doll and actually program her voice you know program her uh movements to fit the, the rhythm of the song so it was quite an undertaking and obviously you know Gerard also wanted a piece that the audience could react to in the, the you know the audience of the scene mm-hmm. um, filming so that they kind of had a sense of what was going on um and you know then we got in the studio with Jenna Davis uh who, who brilliantly voices Megan and you know she also she was hired because she's also a terrific singer and she's a wonderful voice actress too um and yeah I mean you know that that really came together over over the, a long course of post you know recorded with her in the studio and then ultimately with tell me your dreams i mean gerard was like hey let's make this like let's make this a full-on disney parody like let's, let's <laughs> which took me by surprise a little bit but it actually was sort of right at the point we were kind of really getting into the score scoring process and it really unlocked this like fantasy element of megan and like harps and magic and things that I didn't necessarily know that he, he'd be willing to go there with. And I think he wasn't necessarily 100% sure at the time. I think he knew it in his bones, but he didn't necessarily, he hadn't articulated it yet, which is how different Megan for a horror movie could go into this kind of fantasy colors like harps and, and vibraphones and, 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 you know, lush strings and warmth, things that you just don't typically experience. You weren't um, expecting to bring some of the sounds from when you did uh, How to Train Your Dragon to come into Megan? That that wasn't like your first thought? It, it, it wasn't, actually. It wasn't. But I mean, I think that I think we were, I guess it was all meant to be in that, you know, um, Gerard, had, he, he'd specifically wanted to work with me because he wanted a composer who had that dexterity to kind of go to other places. He knew that he I think he just, you know, obviously when you start out, it seems obvious in hindsight, but you don't know quite where you're going to want to push things. And, you know, leaning into some of that fantasy palette was really fun to do. I mean, and, and I think has made the, the, the film more different as a result. Um, you know, this kind of darker, darker Alice in Wonderland vibe that Megan kind of embodies. Yeah, absolutely. No. And, I'm glad I'm not the only person who was like, she looks exactly like Alice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She definitely has. I mean, she she wears so many hats. And I think that's what's so cool about the movie. And also, like, the opportunity for the score was, like, huge. To have a character that can hold, like, so many kinds of music and and and, and it's sort of illogical and, and logical all at once because she's, she's this young girl who's, you know, embodying... She's embod- well, she's she's embodying the, the the innocence of a young girl and like that wonderful childlike wonder and, and and naivety, but also the kind of warmth of a parent and guardian, you know, and kind of like a she's kind of like a 50s housewife. Um, which, <laughs> you know, Gerard, like he 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 was sort of has always seen her as a femme fatale, you know, kind of a um yeah, yeah, you know, she um yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I'm, 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 you've probably got all sorts of cool questions that I'm just like spewing. So you're all good. That's the fun thing about podcasts is you can really just keep talking. That's the whole point. Uh, 
Well, and you actually kind of spearheaded another one of the questions that I wanted to lean a little more into, which is like this intersection that we have in the score with diving between that childlike innocence and also the horror noir of, you know, Megan and her not exactly being uh, innocent. I mean, it's a horror movie. I don't know why I'm acting like that's a spoiler. People (laughs) do not all survive this film. I think there's actually a death in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler. Also, this is a podcast. People should be expecting spoilers. Anyway, (laughs) um, you're playing with all these different things from like the metallic hard sounds that you would, you know, expect from something like Scream, but also into, you know, the harps and stuff that we get from your more fantasy works into playing with the childlike innocence. And as you mentioned earlier, the director was looking for somebody with the dexterity to, you know, go between those different areas. But what was it like really bringing that to the forefront? Was this something you guys talked about in spotting sessions? Was this something that, you know, as you were diving into it, you're like, oh, and then from the harp, it's going to be really cool to move into this thing. What was it like, you know, making that intersection happen? I mean, I definitely, in, in all my scores and, and the, the scores I've been lucky to be a part of and, and learn, learn from the, the great composers I've, I've worked with, um, you know, try to, try to find a, a language that is somewhat universal, that, you know, that gives you that sense of, you know, of, of characters, um, you know, there's something different that, you know, you're not just hearing something that you've heard in another movie. Um, and, you know, obviously like that, that comes in, the, in both the shape of, of palette and timbre of instruments, but also like the, you know, harmonies and, and the, like motifs and, and melodies that kind of come across. So there's definitely like, even at the most extreme moments of the score, you know, the, the, the scope of the score obviously goes from, you know, very soft to, to very like intense industrial synths. But generally there's always some kind of overlap, like whether it's a like motif, even if it's an atonal shorts, uh, you know, short strings kind of spelling the motif of, of, of the, you know, the emotional motifs or, or something, um, you know, or like, you know, I love harp because it's, it's such a broad color. And if you actually use harp in very dense orchestral action music, it's very visceral. It's very raw and rugged because of the way, the way you have to play, you have to really, you know, you have to really dig into it to be heard in the orchestra. Um, so, you know, harp was, uh, harp was a thing that was able to be a through line in terms of palette. And then the descending um, three note motif that I wrote for, really it was for Katie, it was really for loss, death. Mm-hmm. It's established at the beginning of the score. That then, you know, keeps, you know, right till Megan's last breath um, or last, what's the word for that breath? Buffer? <laughs> yeah, her last like bit of little bit of like ram being unleashed mm-hmm. or whatever it is um yeah um you know she um th- you know that's that so you know i think it's it and these things obviously like aren't necessarily at the forefront but they do help like bind the kind of tapestry all together yeah um what would you say was you know your favorite cue amongst that whole thing to really get to work with 
I, I don't always ask this question, but it felt right for the timing of your last answer. Um, okay. Why? I'd be curious, were there any cues that you, that like jumped out at you on seeing the movie or listening to the soundtrack? So I'm not going to lie. A lot of me watching this movie, my eyes were closed because I suck with watching horror movies. I'm the worst person to try and watch them with because I'm such a scaredy pants. But that first scene where Katie starts opening up to Megan emotionally, I was just like drawn to how genuine it felt with her emotion, whereas I was expecting it from like my point of view to feel very, you know, artificial and mechanic. Cause I'm like, she's talking to a robot. Why does it feel like it's a person? Is is that the one when she draws the picture? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, no, I mean I, I'm just curious like what 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 stands out. I mean, yeah, I love I mean I love working on all of it. I think the um the thing I particularly enjoyed was the scene when Megan's at the window and she's like processing her environment because she's just mm -hmm. learned about death. And so it's the first time she inhabits the three note theme, the three note um, motif. And it's kind of, it's in, you know, previously it, it had been done in a kind of contemporary drama sort of way, like piano and moody chords mm -hmm. and, um, and strings and, and some synths. But then in this, in this setting, it really like Megan basically takes that on and then spins it into her own palette. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like vibraphone, there's this, you know, I mean, like we generally we tried to work with very organic colors or, or ride the line, use colors that are like, is that a scent? Is that a, what is that? Um, you know, vibraphone I've always liked for that reason. It's very, it's like very metallic, but it also has a slight, you know slightly technical element to it with the motor which creates like an interesting kind of wave um you know and then give you know giving a organic part something that is inherently a little bit techy so like throughout that sequence the vibraphone is playing like a kind of oscillating octave thing you know almost like a like a synth like if you mm -hmm. put it through like a synth um arpeggiator it would kind of make that kind of shape um as she's processing but then around that you know, even more organic colors like creepy vocals and and noir strings, and then you know some scents um, uh, uh, as well that are like a little more shiny. So just that kind of you know creating this tapestry that that's really based on one idea as Megan is processing the world around her, and I, um, that was a kind of you know, and then also getting some harp, you know harp harmonics also I, I like a lot because they're mm -hmm. very ambiguous. They have that kind of yeah, they have that interesting thread of, um, you know, um, you know, is it is it organic? Is it processed? What is it? Um, and it's also, you know, inherently like a, a, a you know, to to me, I, I love it as a as a feminine color, and I've always loved harp. And as you know, in my work on How to Train Your Dragon: Homecoming, obviously, there's a lot of Celtic harp and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So um, it all, um, yeah, it it was that was really fun to do. And, you know, obviously then that, that develops, develops through um, as the film progresses. Yeah. I, that's also just a really great theme that, you know, 
I love how simple it is with just the three notes because at the end of the day, Megan is still like M three. Goal is simple. Yeah, and yeah. she's M, she's M three again. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that was a you know, it's fun to take those little little chances when you can. A lot of the action music also had like a, uh, I mean, a lot of gr those kind of classic horror scores like Chris, Christopher Young and, and, and Margaret Chami's work, like has a ritualistic aspect to it that Gerard really wanted to capture. So using like, um, you know, using the idea of that kind of a chant, but it's the orchestra's doing the chant, like the low brass mm -hmm. and the percussion. So there's, a, you know, at the end, there's kind of, Papa, Papa, mm -hmm. which is you know Megan, Megan. It's very brilliant mm -hmm. and genius, <laughs> or not? I love that. I didn't even <laughs> catch that it was Megan, but you know, yes. you, you you have to take what what's what's on the table. So yeah. I, I, I like doing those little things. I mean, they they give you, I guess. I mean, apart from anything else, they make you make a decision, but they they just give you a framework to like make a choice that is intentional and custom to the the film the film that you're working on and so you know i like i think the, the number three was like was was a cool thing too i mean i did a lot of triplets like that whole sequence was just talking about the uh, the subject of death you know it's in that kind of compound time that's you know it's got that like which, which lends itself really well to lullabies too and essentially like she's she's casting this kind of lullaby Protect, protective spell over Katie and, and her home. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it wanted that kind of um, uh, lilting, lilting feel as, you know, but also creepy. So it's really fun, like musically to see what you can kind of bind together. You know, can you, can you infuse a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and then get them all to, to become one as if they were always meant to be. Yeah. And I mean, the first, as soon as you started pointing out the three, the first thing my brain went to was like my high school English classes, uh, reading um, basically any book and them talking about why three means death. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like that's why in, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name, but like the phone rings three times and that's when the protagonist of the novel dies. Gosh. The one played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and now I'm for completely forgetting the name of the book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh. The Beach? No. It's a 1920s movie, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, my gosh. This is going to give up me, like, five different movies. Why did I just look at that? No, it's not Revolutionary Road. Uh, it's not important. The Great Gatsby. There we go. Oh, the Great Gatsby, Great Gatsby oh, is the one with all of the three... Three means death. Um, that's the one. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, that was what we called the death theme. So somehow we knew that. You've you've told you've educated me. Um, you know that basically that was the theme that was established for death, Katie's loss of her parents, and then you know that's what Megan when she then Megan doesn't get the death theme for a while, and then when she finds out that Katie lost her parents, that's what that's the moment that that catapults the movie into this moment where she's going to end up killing everyone or not killing people she thinks are a threat to Katie because um, she gets this new piece of information that she's not able to process. So that moment when she basically inhabits the death motif was, um, you know, was a really important moment for the score. Yeah. 
which and then you know leads us into our entire thing later with uh, Gemma telling Katie that she's using Megan as a reason not to cope or process death. Yeah, exactly. I'm really gonna have to put spoiler in the description of this, but you know what? I do that with like 90% of these episodes, so it's fine. Um, all right. And then my final question is honestly just a fun one. Uh, were you on TikTok before you had a viral TikTok sound? Like, were you on the app? Uh, I was not. I was not on TikTok. Um, I actually just joined it last week just to see yeah. if I could find anything, but I don't know. I don't know anything about it really. Should I look? Let's see. I don't know. Well, because um, Titanium from the movie is now like a viral TikTok sound. Yeah. Does it does it say that it's like our version? I guess like you know how on like on on Instagram it will say so. This like is, if I'm, it says in the corner, I don't know if it says it in the corner. Like I know it is your guys's version. I don't know if that's like what it says on the app. I'm betraying my naivety. Oh, I can't even log in. <laughs> I've resisted TikTok and I was like, well, I should see it because everyone like has told me that there's all these titanium. So I should probably check it out. Um, and yeah. You should just make one TikTok and it's just you sitting there and the sound is playing in the background. See how many people like get it. There'll probably be like three people, but. Oh my gosh, your account was permanently banned due to multiple violations of our community guidelines. Oh my gosh, you know what it probably is? They think you're pretending to be Anthony Willis. That's so funny. I haven't even That's used it. That's probably what it is. Well, like, did you, like, make a username? Yeah. I just, like, made a username, logged in, and then I haven't used it since. But. They I'm... probably, like, think because you made your account, like, after it went viral, they probably just assumed that you're fake. You're a oh, fake Anthony. The world we live in. I need, like, Megan to infiltrate and iron out the code or you could just like ask the publicists you already have that's true i need to get them on the case crazy <laughs> why so am i, I banned from tiktok there could be there could be like naked pictures of me on tiktok that i don't know about <laughs> it's oh. probably not that being naked is also against tiktok's community guidelines oh my gosh okay well anyway yeah no i mean it's so cool like titanium i mean like it's so lucky to get to work with these songs that are just absolute bangers like i mean you know mm -hmm. who doesn't love titanium it's it's amazing choice and it's obviously hilarious lyrically you know i so i i i, I really get to luck out on that and then you know doing a nice like simple lullaby like i mean basically job is like can you make it like a creepy lullaby but then like have it get warmer and build and then become more lush and like you know as as megan starts kind of getting into it she starts getting kind of pleased with herself and how she how she sounds because she's like oh I'm kind of good at this so mm -hmm. that was really fun I mean it's such a short moment really but like we kind of packed a lot of, of shape into it and then it becomes eerie again right at the end it, um, it provided an extra layer of creepiness for me because that song came out when I was 10 years old oh I was really like, oh this I'm like this is awkward well, yeah, that's unfortunately what starts happening. It's like songs that we associate as being like, you know, when we were kids, like not being not that old. And then you're like, oh my God, it's it's been a while. Oh, so no, it, for me, it wasn't creepy because it's like a quote unquote old now. It was creepy because 
I was an 11 year old girl listening to that, trying to make myself right, feel better. Right. I was like, well, so it hit it like that it was weird. Totally, it totally got you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and also, like, I have to say, like, um, Jenna Davis, who, who voice mm -hmm. banging, she just, she crushed it. Like, she really nailed that song. Oh, I've since, like, had, I've since had a few interviews with her where she was kind of like mad that she was like, yeah, they told me to like sound worse. And I was like really self-conscious. And I was like, <laughs> at the time, like, I mean, I guess in, in, in Hollywood music, like you're so used to working with musicians who just kind of have to do like what you ask them. And, and she was so professional about it. She never said anything at the time, but I like, I feel bad that she was like, cause you know, like I have a singing career and like, I don't want people to mm -hmm. think I'm not good. But I mean, she totally like, I think we, I think the kind of combination of, of what Gerard and I kind of brought out of her was just kind of, it, it brought it just into that place where like, she wasn't like too perfect, you know, mm -hmm. that she had the, the rough around the edges that, that Megan needed. Yeah, but it's been, feverish. It's, yeah, it's been an interesting transition for me as I do more projects that are Hollywood based and working with other musicians because I'm, right now I'm still in Boston and most of my musician friends are I like do jazz gigs with and we're definitely not quote unquote nice to each other. Um, and then moving into, you know, okay, this is going to be very professional. I can't just like start telling my friend that they're a complete idiot. Do it again. Yeah. I mean, it become it, it it's brutal. I remember being in music school and, and like people's performances and I mean, the, the judgment, oh my gosh, like, and, and it, it's tough because it's on, on one level. I mean, that is what you're trying to do. And you can't necessarily, without critique, you can't necessarily be better because you have to be hard on yourself. But at the same time, you know, being like choked up and, 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 mm -hmm. and um, wooden and, and, you know, is like the worst thing you can do as a musician. So it's such a crazy, like the, the, the like state of nervous, the, the, the way of saying it yeah the state of nerves that you need like as a musician or a performer is incredibly delicate like you have to have confidence and sensitivity and um you know compassion and and you know it, and and yet like abject like professional professionalism and and um control it's oh yeah it's a, I give a whole ted talk on conservatory culture Wow, I'd love to see that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I am legally required to say TEDx talk. TEDx talk. TED talk. <laughs> but TED talk like really brings out the alliteration. I know, but like I am legally required to say TEDx because they're different. The stack of papers was like this big. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Oh my gosh, but that that doesn't need to be on my podcast. I I can just email you my TED talk when it comes out. I recorded it in November and they still have it. Oh, yeah, I'd love to it. see that. That'd be really interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't, I think, I mean, one of the reasons I really love being a composer is I, I could basically, for the most part, pause and edit myself <laughs> and, and reflect and look back and, and re, you know, I had that control. Whereas as a performer, I mean, you have to, you have the control to then go and perform at which point anything may or may not happen. Um, oh yeah, I mean, my freshman year, my composer teacher had to say, you need to stop being a clarinetist where you like delete any recording you don't like. Cause I used to 
be so melodramatic and literally burn anything I like wrote on paper and didn't like. I'm like, oh, I don't like this melody. Burn it. He's like, you need to stop doing that. Well, or it's quite efficient. You're kind of going like, <laughs> definitely not. Because I think that's the hard thing with composing is like living in the maybe is, is I find that hard. Maybe this now is Now I'm right. just a hoarder. Now you can what? Now I'm just a hoarder. And now you hoard it the all. The things I've written. But now I have an iPad, so it's not messy. Right. So it doesn't take up, yeah. It doesn't take up as much space. I mean, it, like it's just like having like having your ideas organized and knowing yeah this is this is gonna this is gonna really work for this this is gonna be effective and like having that really kind of close close I mean it kind of like I joke that we're like kind of like it's kind of like a wood shop you know if you have enough offcuts you have enough things you can build like a new piece of furniture if you you have to have enough of it because the chances of having like the right thing to build that the, the new chair you need to make from like one or two things of offcuts is very limited. Whereas you, you know, you grow that language. I mean, I remember Thomas talking about this in a, in a class that I was on saying, and like, you know, it's like a good idea is a good idea. And even if it's not something you'll ultimately use in a project, it might teach you something about yourself or you'll, you keep, you keep kind of refining what you are drawn to and what you like your way of, way of doing doing things and making decisions bringing this back to megan how organized does your daw look is everything color-coded or you just have so many stacks oh i'm i'm a i'm a total color code um uh freak yeah no I, it has to be color coded yeah. uh how organized my sessions are is a huge spectrum um it's they start incredibly unorganized where I'm just trying to find an idea and not spend any, oops, not spend any time tidying something that doesn't need to be tidied because it's too fragile. It might not be something I need to use to, by the time I finished a queue, like it has to, everything has to look perfect. Um, so it's a total, it's a total kind of uh, spectrum of, of all of it. I don't even have a spectrum. I just have the two. I have the, I was writing and now there's like 38 stacks going on. But if I want to bounce this, I need to make it organized. And so then it's completely organized and everything's color coded and it looks amazing and all the icons make sense. But my current project logic for some reason thinks a violin looks like a French horn and I don't care enough to change it. I mean, for what it's worth, just to tell you, you use logic, right? Mm -hmm. You, you know, you can hide those icons too, if you want. I know, I'm my still first too day, lazy. My first day working with John Powell, I'm gonna tell you this, my change of yeah. decision, he said that he was deeply suspicious of anybody who used this, those icons. So I, that I was- I use them like to the point I care, but I don't, I haven't turned them off. You don't consciously use them. I see, that's interesting. They They're just like that. still there, because like, most of my sounds come from East West or Spitfire. So Logic doesn't have like programmed what they're supposed to look like. So I'll be like, ah, this is a great piccolo. And then it'll be like, this is a human. I don't care enough. It's there. I mean, that is an important point. It's like, you can have, I, I see um, some people's studios that are like, you know, so incredible to look at. I mean, they're like masterpieces and they've got, 
lights of every kind of color and, and it looks like the coolest thing ever. But the only problem, and, and I mean, I think feeling good in your workspace is so important, feeling like at peace and, and comfortable and, and especially in your work environment and being organized with your files, all these things are so important. But I think there's also something that like, you need to strip away the visual element sometimes because the visual, like really cool visuals, and, the, and, and I think this also applies to a movie, really cool visuals can trick you into thinking that what you've done is better than it is because you're like, oh, look how cool it is. And then, you know, and, and so a really great scene in a movie can sometimes support music that's actually quite uninteresting. And maybe that's all it needs, but it's worth just taking a moment and going, yes, let the film lead me, but also like, am I missing, the, am I missing opportunities here that the film could support something even better? um so back to color coding and all these things you know it's like yes like you can set up your studio in such a way that everything looks so cool and like every time an instrument comes in a light then you know you got cool you have cool meter faders going everywhere and you're like isn't it awesome and it is it's so cool it's so exciting but um you know what i've what i've sometimes done in the past is just turn everything off turn off all the screens and just listen and then just go, does this, does this still give me the feeling? I mean, obviously it won't because that's what we do is we, we're creating something that works with a film, but does this still stand up? Um, and ask yourself those, those questions, something I, I do. So yeah, being too fiddly with like visuals and in and your session is, can be a bit of a red herring, I think, to actually focusing on what matters. And I think that's maybe where you are. You're like, well, I don't care what the track looks like because I'm focusing on what it's doing. Yeah, but I'm going to hide my icons now or John Powell's going to think I'm suspicious. Yeah. Well, no, he'll be suspicious of you, which I guess is a slightly different thing. No, I mean, he, John is lovely and, and he, um, anyway, but I, I just never, <laughs> I'll never forget the way that he looked at me as he said it. I think it was like, it was very, it was like a very, was weird. it, was he suspicious of you? Was, was that the, no, I didn't, I, by the way, I never used them either. I will say Henry Jackman uses them. I hope I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> so maybe it all came from Henry. When John saw Henry had them, he was like, mm, I don't know. It's all Henry's it, fault. And anything that makes you organized and, and gives you clarity so that you can focus on the notes is a good thing. Honestly, it was a great day when I learned I didn't need all my tracks to be green. The, the entire world opened up. Oh. Um, okay, that I have to admit. Sorry, I'm just getting a phone call. Well, we're actually at time, so I was about to wrap it up anyway. Oh, we're going to wrap it up. Okay, yeah. All green tracks is a huge no. Like that, I, can't, I, can't, I couldn't look at that. Because you know what? It's really good to look at your MIDI like a score. Like oh, put, put it all together and look at it. You know, especially if it's orchestral. So it's, if it's pitch based, you know, obviously if you've got loads of synths and percussion all over the kind of occupying those areas, but look at it and, and really kind of ask yourself, you know, just the way you would at a score, if, you know, if you're composing in, in a sequencer and, and, you know, look at your voice leading and look like it should, I mean, it should be perfect and worked out really. Um, so in order to do that, you do need your tracks to be different colors so you can see the different instruments. Oh yes. The low brass is currently green in my world. Low grass to screen, okay. <laughs>
All right. Well, thank you so much, Anthony. We kind of went off the rails, but that's why we have podcasts to go off the rails. This is not The Hollywood Reporter. This is chatting with creators, and that's the wrong side. There we go. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. No, well, thank you, um, Sophia. Is it is it Sapphire? Yeah, Sapphire. Sapphire. Like The Rock. Like The Rock, yeah. Well, fantastic. Um, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk to you, and, um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing more about what you're doing. Of course. Have a great rest of your day and congrats on all your success with Megan. I hope you get unbanned from TikTok. Yeah, well, that's what I have to do now. That's a huge deal. I, not that I, I, don't even, I don't even know how to use it, but um, <laughs> right. thank you. Thank you. Bye.